Amen. Today's scripture reading is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, starting with verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and in return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, are you, uh, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I have laid away in your handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? What, uh, why then did you not put your money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, thanks Dan. Let me add my voice. Drew, Lindsay, we're so happy that you're here. Welcome. We're excited to get to know you better. For anybody else who's visiting this morning, we are so happy that you're here. Please come and greet us afterwards. We would love to get to know you better. A quick announcement, and this is the best time of the service to do it, uh, since all of you are here. We uh, are still trying to distance because of differing level, people's differing levels of vaccination and different things, and so if you see the rows, there's blue tape on them. Please sit there when you come in. But as the fall reopening begins, we may end up having more people than we can sit, sitting only in the blue taped rows. And so this section over here on the left is always gonna be distanced. And so if that's something that's important to you, if you don't have a vaccine or can't get a vaccine because of underlying issues, please sit over here and you will always have social distancing. But if it just doesn't matter to you, if, you feel, if you're vaccinated, you feel comfortable, please sit over in this section, okay? Let me pray, and then we'll dive right into the sermon. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have given to us in order that we might know how better to live. Please speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' parable here uh, has an ironic twist to a contemporary political event. 
There's actually a political background to this parable. Herod the great son, Archelaus, inherited half of Herod's kingdom when Herod died, but he couldn't inherit the title king. You see, the Romans only allowed certain vassals to be called a king, and they had to go to a special ceremony, often in Rome, to be called king. And Archelaus could not inherit that title, because you see, some of Archelaus' own family, they went to Rome to appear before Caesar to oppose Archelaus being called king. And not only his own family, but 50 Jews and Samaritans, who were often at odds, they went together to Rome to oppose Archelaus being called king. This, of course, hurt Archelaus's pride. People did not want him to rule over them, and it created a great political scandal. Caesar dismissed everyone and said that Archelaus would be called an ethnarch and rule over half the kingdom. And if he proved himself, then at a later date, he would be able to be called King Archelaus. Archelaus never proved himself. He was always known as Archelaus the wannabe, Archelaus the wannabe king. And Jesus' parable is ironic because it's not about some wannabe, fake it till you make it, but it's about the true king, about Jesus and his kingdom. In this passage, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die for sin and to save humanity, but people are waiting for him to bring some earthly kingdom, to kick the Romans out and conquer Jerusalem and bring in a new Davidic empire. On, the one, uh, on either side of our passage, we have the Zacchaeus and Jesus' encounter with him and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and right in the middle is Jesus' parable. And in these two passages that bookend our parable, people grumble and complain about Jesus. On the one hand, Jesus' disciples have false expectations about the coming kingdom of God. On the other hand, the religious leaders grumble and complain because Jesus is incredibly gracious. They grumble and complain about God's gracious kingdom. And so this parable shows us that Jesus, the gracious king, will return one day. So we should live as faithful followers in every area of life. Jesus, the gracious king, will return one day, so we should live as faithful followers in every area of life. And we're gonna see this through three main points, the king, the faithful, and the unfaithful. Hold on one second. Thank you, whoever put iced water up here. Wow, that's nice. First, the king. Let's see what this parable can teach us about God's kingdom. In verse 12, we see that the parable tells of a noble man who goes to become a king in a foreign country. And as I already shared, this is actually a common occurrence. Herod the Great had to receive his kingdom in another city from Mark Anthony. Archelaus, his son, tried to receive his kingdom in Rome before Caesar. In Luke's theology, the kingdom was to be completely inaugurated at Jesus' death and resurrection. That's when the kingdom would begin. And that's what is in view here as the nobleman leaves to receive his kingdom. Jesus is speaking about his death and resurrection. I'm going to leave this earth as I die and am raised to new life, and my kingdom will be inaugurated. Throughout Luke, the kingdom of God is a central theme. And the message is that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. In the parable, the king has chosen and entrusted some of his subjects as stewards, giving them one mina each, One mina was 100 days wages for a laborer. He gives them this mina and tells them to engage in business, which could also be understood as make a profit. The nobleman expects his followers to use what he has given them 
to make more. Or as other places in the New Testament explain, bear fruit. Matthew's gospel has a very similar parable, but it's different in, in, in a couple of unique ways. In Matthew's parable, the servants are given talents, and talents are actually several years' wages, a fortune. And the servants are given different amounts of talents, but here in Luke's parable, they're each given one mina. I think that this is to represent the one life that we've each been given. The king entrusting the servants with money aligns with how God interacts with his people throughout redemptive history in the Bible. God calls his people to tasks and mission on his behalf. From Adam and Eve, to the people of Israel, to King David, to Jesus' own disciples, to his church, we've all been given tasks in this world that we are to follow. We are all been given things that we are to steward. In verse 14, we see the rightful subjects have rejected the rightful king. This could be narrowly understood as the Jewish religious leaders who, right after this passage, reject Jesus as he's triumphantly entering Jerusalem. But it's more than that. It's more broadly true that all humanity has rejected God as their heavenly father and Jesus as their rightful king. We have all looked down upon Jesus and said, we want nothing to do with that at some point in our life. The citizens of this kingdom in the parable hated the one who was the rightful king over them. In fact, while they say, we do not want this man to reign over us, it could be better understood as them saying, we do not want this one. The word here is not actually a word for a human. It's this one. We don't want this one to reign over us. There's scorn here. They scorn the rightful king, just as every human at some point in their life has looked down upon and scorned God. The king will return to claim his kingdom, and he will rightfully judge those who've rejected him, as we see at the end of the parable in verse 27. The ruler who represents our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is some harsh words. How do we reconcile this with the picture that we often have of Jesus meek and mild? One commentator, Edwards, notes, if the kingdom of God is the one matter in life to get right, the one matter, and Jesus teaching in the gospel says this, if the kingdom of God is the one matter in life to get right, then such comparisons as the above of Jesus slaughtering his enemies is justified. If it shocks people, if it causes people to think about this kingdom, if it causes their indifference, their apathy, and their callousness to be done away with, and they repent and return to God. All belongs to the king. Everything is rightfully Jesus's. A little, uh, in this parable, the king lends minas to his servants, but is implicit in the parable that everything belongs to the king. The king is Jesus, the son of God himself. He is the creator of all that we see. But too often, we as Christians, and even people who are not Christians, we want to take a salad buffet approach to life. We want to think that, oh yeah, I'll, I'll let Jesus have rule rule over the spiritual aspects of my life, but my work, my sex life, my relationships, my money, I'm going to control that. I'm going to be king over that. Jesus can be king of Sunday morning in church. Jesus can be king of the time that I spend in prayer and the Bible, but I'm going to control everything else. That's how we approach life, and that's not what Jesus wants at all. Jesus is to be Lord over all, because in reality, he is king of everything. Jesus is king of all that we see. He is a gracious, good, loving king. All you have to do is read 
the Bible, the Gospels, to see that. And he has secured our salvation by his death and resurrection. We are in the already not yet period, waiting after his death and resurrection, waiting for his second coming, his return, which this parable speaks of. And when he returns, he will bring about full salvation and restoration. But he will also judge. God is a gracious God, shown forth by his salvation, the fact that Jesus died in our place, but God is also a just judge. And this concept of judgment is not very popular in our modern American period. We don't like that. It's not comfortable for us, the fact that God will judge. We think that God should just love all and be gracious to all, and and he should just let it all go. But if God was not a righteous judge, then the horrific, evil acts that so many humans commit would never be judged and punished, and people would get away with it. And that would not be the type of world we would, anybody would really want to live in if that went to its logical conclusions. We wouldn't want that. As Christians, we should hope for Christ's return. We should look forward to it. We should expect it. We should wait for it. When Christ returns, he will examine each one of us to see if we have been faithful. Which brings us to our second point, the faithful. After a period of time, the rightful king returns to his kingdom and he calls his servants together for an accounting. And from this, we can see that the parable teaches us something about being faithful stewards to our Jesus, to our King Jesus, as we wait for his return. Only three servants are discussed in the parable, even though 10 servants were given 10 minas. Only three servants are discussed, two faithful and one unfaithful. Jesus, the current king, will return at one distant day, and when his kingdom is fully, completely enacted on earth. We live in that already not yet period, waiting for his return, waiting for him to come back. In our modern American cultural lens, we view verse 15 that he might know that they had gained, that he might know what they had gained by doing righteousness, doing, sorry, let me say that again. We view verse 15 that he, he might know what they had gained by doing business in purely economic monetary terms. That's how we view it. However, many commentators have noted that the exact turn of phrase indicates that faithfulness in executing the task is what in view here. What the king is concerned with is if they have been faithful in what he asked them to do. This parable points us to the reality that when Jesus the king returns, he will reward his good, faithful servants. The two faithful servants mention that the one mina they were lent has been invested and brought forth more minas, ten in the case of one, five in the case of other. The main point is that these two servants have been faithful in the opportunities and responsibilities entrusted to them. They faithfully executed the task that they were called to do. And so they are praised by the king. The king praises them, well done. And in verse 17 and 19, we see that he rewards them. The king rewards them. He rewards them with cities, cities to care for, cities to take care of. And we see that this reward is extravagantly out of proportion to the result of the faithful servants. Five or ten minas, return for one minas is definitely a good return. But even ten minas would barely have been able to afford a barn, let alone an entire city. And so the reward is extravagantly generous for what was actually done. Further, the reward is not a privilege, not privilege, it's not ease of life, it's not luxury, it's not being able to do whatever they want. What is the reward? It's greater responsibility and service. 
One commentator notes that this does not mean that a job well done brings on a heavier workload. No, one should think rather of being endowed with greater participation and greater responsibility in the master's reign. The reward of the king shows forth God's grace and abundant generosity and the fact that he wants us to enter into his mission and take greater and greater participation in it. We might object, how does this equate with God's free grace for all? How can he reward some? God graciously gives salvation to all who believe. That's clear across the pages of scripture. We believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, and we are saved from our sins. But God will examine our lives for a life well lived. Just a few scriptures that speak about that. Romans 14, Paul writes, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We will all, Christian and non-Christian alike, stand before God's judgment seat, and we will need to account for how we have lived our lives. 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We all need to account to our master and king, Jesus, one day. The main theological point of this parable is that, steward, that we should be stewards in the period between Jesus' first and second coming. The parable is meant to drive us to consider if we are living faithfully in this in-between period, this already not yet period. Are we being faithful stewards of all that Jesus has given us? Faithful stewards of everything. We might think of this in the terms of the three little pigs that lovely children's story. The three little pigs all built houses. One pig built it out of straw, one pig built it out of wood, and one pig built it out of brick. And when the big bad wolf came, he huffed and he puffed and he blew the house made of straw and wood to the ground in no time at all. But when he came to the house made of brick, he huffed and he puffed, but he could not blow it down at all. This is not unlike Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 3 where he talks about how we all build upon the foundation of Christ, the sure and steady rock of our salvation, and we build with precious materials our wood, straw, and stubble. And the wood, straw, and stubble will be burned up in the last day, but only that which is precious and well-built will endure. Are we like the two little pigs who build our houses of straw and flimsy wood are we building with that which will endure? Who knew that the three little pigs were in the Bible, right? We are called to build upon the foundation of Christ's salvation with good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us. That's what's in Ephesians 2.10. And these good works, which he has already prepared for us and which he enables us to do, they show forth our faith and salvation. They don't earn our salvation, they show it forth. We all have different areas of our life where we want to cling to our own control, where we still want to be Lord. So examine your own hearts, examine your own lives. Where are you not living as a faithful steward, as if God is king over that area? This teaching has far-reaching implications that we should all go back and consider, but let me mention a few. First, relationships. Every single human is an eternal being who will live forever. And so relationships are of extreme importance. Do we steward our relationships? Do we invest in them as if they are of extreme importance? Do we focus on being stewards of our relationship as a spouse, as a parent, as children, as neighbors, friends, employees, coworkers? 
Do we interact with people based on the fact that we will have to make an account before God of our interactions with them? We should invest in our relationships and steward them well and work hard at becoming a good husband, a good wife, parents who love our children well and ask their forgiveness when we fail, children who honor our parents and take care of them, friends who are generous with their time and resources. Second, our talents and skills. Every single person here is uniquely made with an incredibly vast array of experiences and skills that God wants you to steward and use for his glory, the building up of other people, the proclamation of the gospel, and so much more. We all have opportunities to use our gifts and skills. In our community, what ways is God presenting you with opportunities to serve Annapolis, maybe the neighborhood you live in, maybe the club that you're involved with? Think through that. Are you stewarding your skills and gifts well? You have opportunities to use them here at EP Church, and we need you. We need your help. The church is a place to use your gifts and skills for God's glory and building up of other people. One practical way for you to do this is currently, right now, we are gearing up for our fall ministry kickoff. In just a couple of weeks, hopefully you notice the slides, we are going to be switching from a 9 and 11 o'clock worship service to an 8.30 and 11 o'clock worship service with a middle hour focused on equip groups where people are equipped for ministry and life. And we need your help in so many areas. Children's ministry, we need so many volunteers to take care of our little ones so that people can worship and go to these groups and our children can be built up in their faith Student ministry, you just heard about Drew, who's recently here. He's going to need help to minister to our students. College and young adult ministry, adult equip groups, renew groups, greeters, worship team, slides. There's so many areas that you can use your gifts and skills, and we need you and want your help. So if you feel drawn to a specific area, go to the Friday Church email that went out just a couple days ago. There's a link you can click. You can express your interest in serving in different ways, and we would love to hear from you, and we greatly desire your help. So use your talents and skills. Steward them for God's glory. Third way that I want to talk about a little bit practically is work and vocation. Often we think, even though we shouldn't, we think in secular sacred divide terms. We think, oh, well, this is my Christian life over here, and this is my secular work life, and I'm going I'm to do my job, make the money to provide for my family, and then that's that but our work and our vocation should be something we steward for God's glory. I'm not just talking about that we go and we use it as an opportunity to share the gospel with our coworkers. No, God has given many of you amazing skills that you use in the workplace, and you glorify him when you do that well, when you steward that and you work hard for your employer, for the company, and bring about more flourishing in the world. And that's awesome. We each need to evaluate and think, am I working just for my own benefit or am I working for the Lord? Am I just going to my job just to get a paycheck and go home so I can enjoy the rest of my life? Or am I working hard because God made me to work and enjoy it? So examine your work life. Examine your vocation. A fourth way is school. Many of you are students. I see some midshipmen visiting with us, hopefully new here. Uh, do you just skate by as a student? Or do you seek to diligently learn and honor God with the use of your mind? Do you seek to learn as much as you can 
and that honors God? Do you steward your education? The fifth and final way I wanna highlight may come as a surprise to some of you, but in our suffering, the trials, that is something that we should be stewarding. God gives us suffering and trials so that we might be tested and grow in the faith. In 1 Peter 1, Peter writing to his church says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is encouraging us to steward our sufferings and our trials. Too often, especially for modern Americans, we see the sufferings and trials we go through, and we just want to get out of it as quickly as possible. We just want to self-medicate through entertainment and other methods to forget the suffering and trials that we are going through. But God is calling us to press into that, to experiencing that suffering and trials as an opportunity for our faith to be strengthened so that we can live life for his glory and be used by him more. So do you steward your suffering and your trials? Or do you just get through it as quickly as possible? After the two faithful servants come before the king, an unfaithful servant comes. And from this, we can learn a hard lesson about faithlessness to our creator and our God. The servant is not even called the third servant, but he's called another servant. This is an intentional singling out of the servant as embodying something other than the faithfulness of the first two. A few things to note about this servant. First, he disobeyed the master. He completely ignored the instruction. The king commanded his servants to engage in business, and he did nothing related to business. In fact, he took the mina and he hid the money in a handkerchief. He put it in a handkerchief, probably in a drawer somewhere. This was the least he could have done. And in fact, it was actually quite careless. And many people in Jesus' contemporary society would have considered it incredibly careless because somebody could have come and just taken that mina when he was out and about. They didn't have very easy ways to lock up their houses at that time. So the servant was lazy and careless. The servant's reason for hiding the money away instead of obeying in his own words is that I was afraid of you, master, because you are a severe man. The servant was so paralyzed by fear that he did nothing. But were the servant's fears correct? Were the servant's fears correct? No. The king's responses to the first and second servants has already shown the fears to be false. The king was incredibly generous with the first two servants. They earned a small amount, and they were given an abundant, huge reward. The king is generous, not severe and hard. He is a kind and generous ruler. And what this shows is the third servant didn't even know the king, and he didn't want to know the king. The master's response shows the depths of the servant's disobedience. He says, you wicked servant. Contrast this with the positive response to the two faithful servants. One commentator, Daryl Bach, says, if his assessment of the master is right, then he should have done something to gain the master's pleasure. If his assessment is wrong, then he has insulted his master and failed to obey him. The slave is either lying about how he feels about the master to excuse his lack of response, or he has seriously misjudged the master. Above all, he has failed to respond properly to the king. He has failed to respond properly. The king had been extravagantly gracious to the two other faithful servants, rewarding them abundantly. This unfaithful servant 
did not know the king well at all. And sadly, too many of us do not know God correctly. We think, if God is so harsh, if that's how God is, I don't even want to know him. We think of God as a harsh, angry person. But just as the unfaithful servant's words were a false character of the master, our doubting words and our false character of God is wrong. Our God is abundant in grace and love. He's, his favorite description throughout the Old Testament of himself is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This was first said in Exodus 34, and it's repeated again and again and again throughout the pages of the Old Testament. This is how our God describes himself, as a God abundant in love and gracious. The master rebukes the servant, saying, you could have been conservative and safe, and at least put it in a bank to earn interest. And he then takes the one mina of the unfaithful servant and gives it to the faithful servant. And this indicates, again, that when you are faithful in God's kingdom, more responsibility and opportunity and mission follow. The unfaithful servant is judged in a perplexing manner, maybe, to us. In verse 26, the king says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. How can someone who has nothing have something taken away? The two verbs here, given and taken away, are what are called divine passives. They speak of God's giving and God's taking away. In the world's balance sheet, to give something away results in subtraction. But the balance sheet of the kingdom works differently. St. Francis of Assisi says, it is in giving that we receive, it is in forgiving that we are forgiven, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. The third servant represents people who are related to the king, and maybe even are associated with the king's community, and have responsibility in it, but their attitude shows that they do not see God as gracious. They do not really know God, and they have not trusted in him. The third slave's attitude toward the master is important. The servant represents people who don't really know God, and therefore see him as a harsh, unfair taskmaster. We might object, how does this equate with God's gracious gift of salvation based on faith and belief alone? If we trust and believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, this will result in necessary life change, radical life renovation, where the sin is put off and put to death, and we put on Christ-like character through the Holy Spirit's power. We will want to be good stewards of all that we have been given, because we know that the King has died for us and saved us and freely given us that life. And that's why Paul says in various places, he says in Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the, the Father through him. And in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are called to be stewards of all that we have because we've been saved from certain death by the king. Uh, Niccolo Paganini, I apologize if I mispronounced that entire name, is, is referred to as the devil's violinist. He was a famous violinist in the 18th century, and he was 
the most celebrated musician of his time, incredibly famous, uh, praised throughout Europe for his amazing skill at the violin, and he had this famous violin given to him, made by the most famous violin maker in all of history. It was incredibly valuable and a precious instrument. This violin is named the Canon because of its explosive, amazing sound, and it is insured for $35 million, a violin. And it's only left the city of Genoa, Genoa, which now owns it, four times in its nearly 300 years of history. And every time it leaves that city, it has an armed escort, and it's placed in its own airplane seat by itself with the armed escort sitting next to it. When Paganini died, he left the violin to his beloved city of Genoa on one condition, that it not be played. That it, only be play, that it could only ever be played by him, and then he would leave it to the city. But I am told, I'm not a musical uh, person, I'm told that it, this is a great tragedy. Because when an instrument, a violin, is not played, not used, it can lose its quality and degrade and just become a beautiful thing to look at. Similarly, we were created as beautiful instruments to be used by God for his glory, for wonderful acts of creativity, for stewardship of our gifts, our skills, our time, our possessions, our relationships, all of our resources. We are to be used by God as instruments for his glory, for the flourishing of this world, the betterment of other individuals as they come to know Jesus and as we just improve their lives. We are to live our lives as stewards We each need to look at our own lives and thoughts. Are we merely giving lip service to the idea of Jesus as king? The unfaithful servant in this parable is the epitome of Bonhoeffer's cheap grace. A person who says they follow Jesus, but there's no life change, no discipleship, no radical renovation of their lives. If our only concern is our salvation, our ticket out of judgment for our sins, then we have missed the point entirely. That is merely step one to then a life transformation that will last into eternity. That is what God is concerned with. Your entire life and its eternal nature, not just the moment of your salvation and escaping the flames of hell. When it comes to relationship with God, there are only two types of people. Those who know God and trust in him and his salvation, and those who reject him. And though there are only these two types of people, there is a type of person who might trick themselves and others into thinking, yeah, I know God. I've said the words. I believe in him. But then their life shows no change. Their life is not transformed. And the reality of their life shows that they don't really know God. But they're afraid of his punishment. Or they just want to say the words in order to be accepted by friends or family or for some other reason. Everything we have is rightfully under the kingship of our Lord Jesus, from our lives, to our relationships, to our skills, to our time, to our possessions, everything is under his kingship. Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say mine. And if we are rightfully under the kingship of Jesus and should be his subjects, then have you submitted to Jesus as your king? If you have not, I encourage you to examine your heart, examine the ways in which you have sinned against other people and God 
and then confess, which just means acknowledging your sin. Repent, which means turning away from your sin and believe and trust in the fact that Jesus died in your place so that you might be saved and then live a radically transformed life. And then, step by step, day by day, live as a follower of Jesus. Now, returning to the political context of this parable, Archelaus, the wannabe king, was a man of great cruelty. He was that harsh and severe man that the third servant thought the master in the parable was. He had over 3,000 men in one week killed because they opposed his rule. But our King Jesus is not a cruel and severe king. He is a gracious king, longing to extend mercy to each one of us. He is the king who came and died in our place so that we might be restored to the Father. If we confess, repent, and believe, then we are saved and become children of God, adopted brothers and sisters of the King, with all of those rights and privileges which he wants to give us. And since we are citizens of that kingdom, since we are adopted sons and daughters, let us live as if that is true, giving every single inch of our lives to him and stewarding it well. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning having heard this message, which may be hard to hear. It's hard for me to think about as I examine my own life. And we might feel condemned to a degree, shamed to a degree, but Lord, we thank you that in Jesus, there is no condemnation. In Jesus, our shame has been wiped away, our sins have been forgiven, and we are viewed as righteous in your sight, Lord God, because what Jesus has done for us. Thank you that in him we have been saved so that we might then in turn live a radically transformed life where we live for your glory, where we steward everything in our lives because we want to serve you well. We want to do a good job. We thank you that we cannot lose our place with you because it has been bought with the precious blood of Christ Lord God, we pray that as we reflect on this, as we go home, help us, Lord God, to examine our lives, to steward it well for your glory, for the betterment of others, the proclamation of the gospel. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.